Numbers 13, verses 30 through 32. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, though we, through which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to open up your word and for our hearts today to understand it. Lord, it seems like this is a book that doesn't really have anything to do with today. And Lord, we couldn't be more wrong. I pray that you would uh, take any of our preconceived ideas, push them aside, Lord. Give us a heart that is willing to be open to learn and to grow and to apply uh, the truths that are in this book by your grace and by your mercy, Lord. And we thank you that all of your word is relevant for today, even this book. And I pray now that your anointing would be upon me, that you would fill me afresh with your spirit, Lord, that you would cause me to be that sail in the wind being moved by your spirit as I preach. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Numbers. Numbers. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the, the three famous scary books in the Bible. You go, oh, no, no I'm not going to read through that. There's a lot in there. What we need to understand is get a little idea of what's, what's gone on here is that um, the first generation out of Egypt that God delivered out of Egypt is remembered for their lack of faith. Their lack of faith. Uh, this, is, uh, this book is written less than one year from Exodus. That's where it starts. And just one year, one year, this massive group of people, millions of people saw incredible things when you think about it. The ten plagues, the uh, pillar of fire guiding them, separating them from the Egyptian army, the Red Sea parting, all these things. One year later, it's like they don't remember any of it. And they put God to the test. They don't remember any of his mighty works. So what we're going to learn today is this, that God disciplines and restores his unfaithful people with fatherly love and care. Even in the midst of all this craziness that's happening in numbers, God is still faithful, God is still loving. And that's what we're going to learn, the idea that God is not a loving God. The Old Testament God is the God of hatred and the New Testament God is the God of love. Couldn't be farther from the truth. It's the same God in both, testament, in both uh, testaments. Well, when we look at this word, we realize this, that the original Hebrew in this book, for the title of this book, meant in the wilderness. Okay, that's what it meant in Hebrew. They took one of the first few uh, Hebrew words and used that for the title. We know that Moses wrote this book somewhere around 1450 to 1410 B.C., and then the Septuagint, what that is, is that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And when they changed it over, the Greek Septuagint decided to call this book Numbers. Okay, And the reason being is because there's a counting in the beginning of the book of the men of war and at the end of the book. So that's how it gets its name, Numbers. But if you want to be more technical, the original Hebrew would have been in the wilderness. 
So that's just a little bit of information for you to kind of look at and, and uh, kind of brag about somebody. Well, you know, that wasn't the original name there. By the way, here's the three main sections of this book when we break it down. Chapters 1 through 9 is preparing to inherit the promised land. They're getting ready to go in. They're doing certain things are happening. Then chapters 10 through 14, failure to inherit the promised land. And then finally, 15 through 36, wandering and punishment in the promised land. Getting ready to go in, but still not in the promised land. Um, as we said, we're going through different uh, each book, and we're trying to find Christ in each book. Hold up with this slide one second. And here's why. Because what we do is we find Jesus in the book of Numbers in these ways. In Moses, in the water from the rock, in Balaam's prophecy, and the bronze serpent, which... You're going to be surprised at this, but what is the most famous verse in the Bible? Probably John 3.16, right? Did you know it's tied to the book of Numbers? Take a look. Numbers 21, 5 through 9. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe the worth, this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So Moses prayed for, for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit someone, he could look at the bronze serpent and live. How's that tied to Roman, or John 3.16? Look at John 3.14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You see, that's the point of what we're making as we're going through the, this entire Bible and each book, that Christ is reflected somewhere in each book. And we see in this bronze serpent, we see Christ. That's exactly what the New Testament is saying in John chapter 3. It's saying just as that bronze serpent was lifted up. Well, what happened? The bronze serpent was is that the people were in rebellion. They had resisted God's direction and God's call. And so what happened is, is that God sent fiery serpents. They had a death sentence on them. If one of those serpents bit you, you were going to die. Just like we as people, when we, because we have sinned, we are separated from God. And what that means is that we have a death sentence on us. If we've sinned one time in our entire life, one time, we are separated from God because he is holy and he is just. And in his justice, he punishes sin. And that means that we must be separated from God in a place called hell, which is an uncomfortable uh, conversation in today's churches, but it, it happens in this church. And so we have a death sentence on us because we're sinners. And God is just and loving God. And so he's going to punish sinners because of their sin. And so we have a death sentence because of that. But God provided a way. Just as they had a physical death sentence, God provided a way. He said, make this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole. And you know what? When they, by faith, because there was nothing magical about it, right? They, when they would go there and say, you know what? Moses said, if we would put, if we would just simply go look at that bronze serpent, we wouldn't die. Put our faith there. That's what they're comparing it to. They're saying, you know what? Christ is going to be raised up. He's going to be crucified. 
And if we would look upon him and put our faith in what Christ has done on the cross, that death sentence that we were all facing, eternal separation from God, God would provide a way that there would be eternal life instead of uh, condemnation. And that's the picture that's being painted here. All the way back in the Old Testament, 1450 B.C., God was giving an example of the cross in Numbers. He's pointing towards Christ. And then John, all these years later, comes back and says, Oh, by the way, remember that, all you Jewish people? Yep, that was pointing to Jesus. That was only a physical salvation. This is an eternal salvation. So that's the picture that we see here, that God provided a way where there was no way, where only there was a death sentence upon us. And he made a way through Christ on the cross. And he pictured that in advance, in numbers, in the fiery serpent. Incredible, isn't it? God's word is so amazing. So amazing. We see Jesus all over the Old Testament. We see God's goodness all over the Old Testament. All over. Well, what we find is this. That God didn't just desire the nation of Israel to come out of slavery, and that was it. His desire was that he would, they would come out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, and into the promised land. That was God's desire in his heart, that they would move right through to the promised land. But that's not what happened. God had promised that there would be goodness and there would be blessing, right? The land will be flowing with milk and honey, God promised goodness and blessing, but they didn't trust him. Ah, I can't, nah, I don't know. And so what we find in the book of Numbers is this constant battle with people trusting God. It's over and over and over again. There would have been 11 days, 11 days of progress into the promised land if they would have walked in obedience to God. 11 days instead it was 40 years of difficulty, 40 years instead of 11 days. And what happened is that every man, 20 years old or older, died in the wilderness because they would not trust God. Take a look at God's word again. Numbers 14, 29 through 31. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Wow. Wow. Every... Every man 20 years old or older died in the wilderness. They did some calculations, and that means that roughly 1.2 million people died in the wilderness, about 82 deaths per day. Sin is a serious issue with God. I think that's something that we kind of gloss over today in the church. Sin is serious. It's a big deal. And what we find here is that this group of people who saw all these miracles of God, all right, they see all the things that have happened. 
And from the beginning of this book to the end of this book, there is no progress made in 40 years. No progress. If you look at how this book starts and how it ends, it is a numbering of the men of war in the beginning of the book, and it's done in Kadesh Barnea. And at the end of the book, there's also another numbering. And you know where they're at? Same place, Kadesh Barnea. No progress, 40 years, nothing. That's what we have a picture of in the book of Numbers. So what is the reason? Why no progress? What happened? Well, we can find that answer in chapter 13. Because chapter 13 in the book of Numbers is the turning point for the entire book. You know, each, each time we, we are preaching, it seems like one chapter stands out. In Genesis, in Exodus, now in Numbers as well. Not so much in Leviticus, that was a toughie. But Ryan did a good job. Numbers chapter 13. Take a look. Verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. These are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of their tribes. These are the most mature men, supposedly, of their tribes. I want the chief. I want the top dog in each family. And I want you to send them. As a spy. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. I found this interesting as I was doing my studies. Isn't it interesting? 40 days, they were checking out the land. And how many years did they spend in the desert? Because they wouldn't believe the testimony. 40 years. 27. We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. God said, Send spies. God said, Send spies. I wonder why doesn't really say why in God's word, but I think part of it was that God wanted them to see the land that he had promised them. Take a look. You need to understand, because you see, they had an understanding of Egypt, didn't they? They knew. They came from there. They had no idea what was ahead of them. They had no idea what was in Canaan. What is this promised land? How great is it? Is it really that good? So he sent spies in there that they might see the greatness of the land. The goodness of the land flowing with milk and honey. And they saw that. The spies saw that. God sent them that they would go and give that report. And two spies, Caleb and Joshua, understood God's word. If God's word was true about the nature of the land, in other words, it was really flowing with milk and honey, and it was as great as God said it was, they concluded this. If God was telling the truth about that, then God's telling the truth about conquering our enemies for us. The first statement was true. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give you this land. So their common sense, they put it together, and God gave them the faith to believe that if what I said in the beginning was true, then what I said at the end was true. My whole promise is true to you. And so they said, let's go, man. Who cares how big they are? 
It's about God, not them. We can get caught up today in the world, I think, sometimes. And we can say, boy, the powers that be, who can change their hearts? They're so anti-God or whatever. We get worried about it and we start thinking, wait a minute, time out. Who is the God of all creation? Our God. We will not walk in fear. And so what happens is, is we see, they, they see it and they say, listen, our God is going to give us the victory. As a matter of fact, I'm glad the inhabitants are huge. I'm glad it looks impossible. You know why? God gets more glory when he does it. I mean, it's easy to beat a bunch of wimps, right? Let's have the big boys in there. And God waltzes in there and says, go. I'm going to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. The victory is yours because I'm going to win the victory for you. Now go. Trust me. Put your hope in me. Not in your strength. Not in your wisdom. Go. Trust in me. That's the picture that we see that Caleb and Joshua had. They believed God. He made a promise to them. And they were going to hold on to that promise no matter how impossible it looked to them. And that's the picture that we have. But then there were ten other spies. Again, supposedly the men of great wisdom from each tribe. Clearly not the men of faith from the other tribes. And they said, listen, we're like grasshoppers to these guys. We're like grasshoppers. They're going to beat us. We, no way should we go. Brothers and sisters, Please listen to this very closely. Fear rises when faith starts to weaken. When our faith starts weakening, fear rises. When we are afraid of what's happening around, what could occur, and oh no, then our, we get become more and more afraid because we're not putting our hope in God. We're putting our hope in circumstances or situations or people instead of, listen, God said, and so I'm going to put my hope in him. It doesn't matter how impossible it looks. But when our faith, when our faith weakens, fear rises every time. So if you have a situation in your life where you're walking in fear, ask yourself this question, where's my faith weak? Why, is, why am I walking in so much fear right now in this area? What truth in God's word am I not believing? What truth about who I am in Christ am I not believing? What is it? Why is this fear so controlling me? What is it? And go back and ask God that. And the Holy Spirit in his kindness and his mercy will gladly show you. And then ask God, God, you know, repent and say, God, forgive me and, and grant me the faith to trust you, to trust your word. I'm not going to walk in fear. God promised the promised land, and that he would defeat its enemies. But instead, the people trusted 10 spies. Please listen to this accurate report. Yeah, those people in that land were as nasty as they thought they were. They were accurate. They weren't giving a false report. See, we want to kind of read that in there. It really wasn't that bad. Yes, it was probably that bad. And they probably did have an accurate view of what it was. That's the whole point of this whole little scenario that's happening here is that it really was the way they thought it was. Because that's what God would send us to, 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 to bring himself glory, as he would say, listen, I know this looks impossible. That's my point, Dan. I am the God of the impossible. 
Look at what I did a year ago. They were three million slaves to the Egyptians, and I set them free. And the waters parted in front of them, and they walked through it, and I drowned the entire Egyptian army. Trust me, I am the God of the impossible. Let's go. When you think about it, and I didn't until this point, God had already taken out the world's most powerful army, the Egyptian army, a year earlier. They were ruling the world. Their army was feared in the known world at that time. And God just, boom. And so now you got a bunch of Canaanites. God could have handled them, but they had no faith. They had no faith. They decided to trust in their own understanding. They decided to put their hope in what they could see in the reports of men who had very little faith rather than in the men who had faith. And they put their hope in men and their own reason. And my challenge to us today, a lesson, a lesson from numbers is trust God, trust God, not your own understanding in whatever situation you're in, trust God. And God's word encourages us to do that. Take a look. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. That's ex- isn't that exactly what happened here in Numbers? There seems a way is right to man. We can't go in because of that. And it ended in what? Death. Everybody 20 and older died. And then you go 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what God was commanding them to do, and they didn't do it. See, that's why so much of the Old Testament is a practical walking out of the the truths that are in the New Testament. They chose not to walk by faith, but to walk by sight, and the consequences happen. And there's other times in in the Old Testament where they are walking by faith and not by sight, and we see the fruit. So what we see is that how the Old Testament and New Testament just kind of interconnect and they flow together. And it's the same God doing, pouring out his grace and his mercy in both books, or both testaments. And then finally in Isaiah 55, For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know what situation you're in, but I do know that God knows. And he's got a purpose in it. He's not random. You know, I know some of you are in some very difficult situations. But is God or is God not sovereign over all things? And if he is, then we can put our hope and our trust in him. We can walk by faith and not by sight. We can trust our God. And when, when by God's grace, we're able to walk by faith and not by sight, then something happens that didn't happen in Numbers. We can begin to grow spiritually. You see, these people were just in this neutral place for 40 years. No progress, no nothing. But when we can, by God's grace, walk by faith and not by sight, then what happens is then we grow spiritually. Walk by faith and not by sight. You know, I want to encourage you in this area. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will give you a little prompting, okay? Maybe to call someone or to do something. Walk by faith. Walk by faith. Say, you know what? I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to call them up, and I'm just going to see how they're doing. And you don't have to be spooky, okay? I always say this. You don't have to be spooky about it. I have a charismatic background, okay? So sometimes we like to get spooky. Well, you know, I was having my quiet time today, and the Lord laid you on my heart. 
And I'm wondering, is everything okay with you? And they go, oh, you know, all of a sudden, wow, you know, it's Dan. Okay, if God told him that, then there's something, something must be wrong. Right? Something must be going on here. Instead, we can just say, you know, I, I, just, I just wanted to give you a call today to see how things were going. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? You don't have to be that, that kind of spooky person. But you can still be led by the Spirit. And that's the point. That's the point. To trust that God is using you for his glory, that he's speaking something to you. Maybe it's a verse in the Bible that sticks out, and you don't know why, but it's just, you know, it's in your quiet time today, and it's just standing out like all the others aren't. And then you go, you know what, that must be for someone. Is that for me, Lord? You know, and you just, okay. And then three days down the line, you go, oh, that's who it was for, Lord. You see, that's walking by faith and not by sight. It's trusting that the Holy Spirit loves you and he's using you for the glory of God. And it's in little things when you're tempted to sin and instead God gives you the grace to say, you know, step away, Dan, use the exit sign that I provided. Or, you know, that prompting of just give them a call, see how they're doing, or bless this person. And what happens then is that we step out in these little ways where we walk by faith and not by sight, trusting that God's word is true about who we are in Christ and that his spirit is alive and well and using us for God's glory, then what happens is we take these little steps of faith, walking by faith, our faith grows. We're not stagnant. And we're seeing the hand of God move. Pray for the things you need. Pray and watch God move. And you stand back and you go, man, God knew my needs. Look at what he provided. And you st- what do you do? You worship God. So walk by faith, not by sight. Don't be like the people in, in numbers. It's so, so difficult to see that happen. You know, as you read through numbers, you see this, that, that God forgave the people. But there were consequences. There were consequences to their sin. And the consequence for this group of people for not believing God was that they would spend 40 years in the wilderness and that they would never see the promised land. Take a look at God's word again. Numbers 14, 20 through 25. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to, the, to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because of, he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Then in Hebrews, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Here's another lesson that we can find in Numbers, it's a hard lesson, but it's a lesson. It's this. Consequences to sin sometimes are long-term. Consequences to sin sometimes are long-term. I can think of a couple examples. One example would be, a, you know, you're just going to have one night out to, you know, get really drunk or whatever, and sure enough, you get in an accident and someone's killed and the consequences that follow that for the rest of your life. How about one that will really make people uncomfortable? Um, 
you don't take seriously the command in the word of God to not be unevenly yoked. So you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you marry an unbeliever, okay? And I have sat in my office with many a person who has been put in that position and them weeping because 30 years later, they're still reaping what they sowed all those years ago. 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. So there's times when the choices that we make that are choices of sin, the consequences will follow us for a long time. And that's just the truth. That's what God's word shows us. There are times when that happens. It's difficult. But you know what's key to remember if you're a person in those, one of those situations or you know someone? What did God do here in this book? God never abandoned his people. The key is that we must remember that the Lord never abandons his people and that he blesses even when he's disciplining. He's blessing even when he's disciplining. Think of the book of Numbers. It says in Deuteronomy about their travels in the wilderness. It says, you know what? But the whole time, their shoes never wore out and their clothes never wore out. Take a look. Take a look. Deuteronomy 29.5. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. And then in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Yeah, you read that in the New Testament, right? There's where it comes from, Deuteronomy. You see, that's the thing that is that God... Despite our sin, God will discipline us, and it's a sign that we're his children is what the word of God says. He says he disciplines those he loves. That's what it says. And so what happens is that even though he's disciplining us, there's a blessing of the Lord. Let me take, for example, the idea of being unevenly yoked. A lot of the people that I've talked to also have children because of that marriage. Those children are a blessing from God. They may have conflict. They may have things that are because of that decision. But you see, God is not abandoning you if you're in a situation where you're reaping years and years and years from sin that you did in the past. Okay? God hasn't abandoned you. God is standing by your side. He's disciplining. He's a loving father. A loving father does those kinds of things. And as it says in the scripture, that discipline for, at the moment is not pleasurable. It's not. But it reaps a harvest of righteousness. So you look at it and you go, okay, God, you haven't abandoned me. It's really hard right now. I made a choice and I'm still reaping from that choice. But you haven't abandoned me. You've always been by my side all this time. And you will let never leave me nor forsake me. And even in the midst of this, you bless, you take care of. You do things that, that are beyond what I can understand. Your ways aren't my ways. So we see that uh, in the midst of this, maybe you're in one of those people that you made a decision and, and, and it was a sin, uh, it was a decision to walk in disobedience to God and you're reaping and it's been a long time. Okay. But know that God is not mad at you. He loves you. He's disciplining you. And he will continue to bless you and enable you and empower you to make it through it. That's our God. That's our God. So rest in that. 
Delight in that, even though it's hard. Because you know what? There's so many lessons in this book, it's amazing. And here's one for all of us, whether you're going through a real extended time of, of maybe discipline or not, is this, that despite God's grace and God's discipline, Israel continued to be unfaithful, rebellious, and disobedient. Isn't that all of us? My goodness. In the book of Numbers, there are seven rebellions that are listed. Seven. Okay, so it's not just one. It's not just the, the fiery serpent thing. It's like one thing after the next after the next. When will these people learn? When will they learn? Same group of people that God delivered out of Egypt. And over and over and over again, they're stubborn, they're rebellious, they disobey God. They're just like we are, or we're just like they are. It's amazing to see. You see in these seven rebellions a pattern. See if this pattern flows in your own personal life. First of all, there's the sin of the people, which leads God to punish them, discipline them, whatever you want, term you want to use there. Then they pray to God, and God saves them. Isn't that the pattern of all of our lives? I mean, we struggle with sin. And you think, when am I ever going to get over this, Lord? My rebellious spirit, God. When will I get past it? We struggle with sin, don't we? Man, we struggle with sin. It's just being caught in this flesh thing. But I want you to know this. So much of rebellion starts with complaining about your circumstances. That's the pattern we see in numbers. And you know what? Complaining is a very contagious thing, isn't it? We want to complain about something, and we find someone, and before you know it, they're complaining, and it just becomes contagious. So it starts with complaining about our circumstances, and then we look with disdain upon God's blessings and provision. Take a look, 14. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We just, you know, that's us. <laughs> Come on. Let's, we can play the game and say, oh, those, those people back then. Oh, those people right here. Okay? And so what we see is that uh, they complained, and then they looked with disdain upon God's blessings. And when you look with disdain upon God's blessings in your life, what you're doing is you're indirectly impugning God's character. You're indirectly impugning God's character, the things you do or don't have. I need a bigger house. Why? Because you know better, right, than the Creator God. We believe we know better than God. And you see, that's where it starts so much in our heart. We grumble and complain about our circumstances, and then, well, if God, then he'd provide this or that. And then we rebel. We look back to Egypt, or we do things that we know we wouldn't do otherwise, that are sin or a lack of integrity. And that's why, brothers and sisters, for us today, another key for us when we're walking in the wilderness, times are tough, whatever it might be, is this. 
Be content by finding your joy in the Lord, not in your circumstances or your stuff. Be content in Jesus. Take a look at God's word again. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is that secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's all about Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. There are people without those things that are still content. You realize that? We have brothers and sisters in Christ right now that are starving around the world, and they're content in Christ. Where is our contentment resting in? Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whoa, numbers. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see how that ties in? Why didn't they go into the promised land? Because they were afraid of what men could do to them. It's amazing. God's word is amazing. I love it. What we find is we need to be content with what God has provided. Be content. You know, pursue what you feel you need to pursue, but don't do it uh, because you, there's an uneasiness and you'll think you'll somehow uh, find your, your joy in when you accomplish this thing or that thing. Your joy is in Christ. I love what Brock Purdy said, the quarterback for the Niners, right? The last guy chosen in the draft. He's leading the 49ers today in the playoffs to possibly go to the Super Bowl. He's a believer. And he just, I, he, the quote was something like this. He said, no, my, my, I don't find my, my satisfaction and my joy in doing this. He said, my Joy and satisfaction is in Christ. He said, it's in Christ. That's where I get my value. Whatever happens, happens. Wow! That's something else. That's contentment. And if he crashes and burns today, he crashes and burns today. And you know what? He's going to wake up tomorrow morning. He's still going to know he's loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter what anybody else says. He's content in Christ. Numbers is a record of human failure due to perpetual stubbornness and foolishness compared against God's patience and continual faithfulness to his promises. Even with gifts of grace, we often rebel against God's plan and purpose. You know, when we're talking about this as the redemptive stories, we're going through it. You know what the redemptive story about it is from now until Revelation? It's really the challenge of the struggle to submit my heart to God. That's what Numbers is. Submitting our hearts to God. God disciplines his children. He provides for us and he restores us even when we're unfaithful. And he does so with fatherly love and care. That's the truth. No matter what situation you're in, he cares for you. He loves you. He's taking care of you even in the midst of the desert that you put yourself in many times. Brothers and sisters, he provided everything for three million rebels to survive. He can provide everything for that rebel to survive too. Amen? I'm going to close with a verse, a couple of verses from Come Thou Fount, written in 1758. Take a look at this. 
O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it forth like courts above. Here's my heart, Lord, though it's weakened. Hold me in your precious arms. Numbers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible word that seems so distant, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, you open up the pages of your book and you show us your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your holiness, your discipline, your fatherly care, your fatherly love, even in a book that seems to be nothing but heaviness and judgment. God, thank you. Thank you for your preciousness, for your love for us, for your care, that you love us enough to discipline us. God, cause us now to walk, walk by faith, Lord, and not by sight. God, do this work, do this miracle in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.